So we're sitting down with the innovators, middle managers to CEOs who are on the front lines of digital transformation to see how they did it and what they learned. That's the important thing with change, right? Is that whether you're making change or adjusting to change, it's really about focusing on the people. So join us as we uncover gritty perspectives on turnaround jobs, prioritization, road mapping, user behavior insights, and scaling organizations. We have a very special guest for you today on the Innovation Engine, Sam Curry. He's a podcaster, chief security officer of Cyber Reason, and a visiting fellow at the National Security Institute. Hear Sam talk about the importance of breaking out of your box to make an impact at the leadership level. Really great lessons in here for anyone and especially for anyone interested in security. Let's get into it. Our guest today is a man of many talents, a podcaster, chief security officer at Cyber Reason and visiting fellow at the National Security Institute. Welcome, Sam. Hi, good to be here. Thanks for being with us today. And so our theme that we're on at the moment is around helping an organization get through growth. And I know, gosh, you've been through a lot of growth in your career. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about what types of growth you've experienced. Wow. Uh, Yeah. So I think I've always been in organizations that were growing. And when I was in organizations that weren't, I I pretty much left. Um, So I was in two startups in the 90s, one of which sold to McAfee. And of course, those were heady, heady rides. That's the zero to something. And and in one case, zero to call it 20 million, which which was an experience as my first, uh, let's call it my first venture as an entrepreneur uh, and, and, and wearing many hats. At McAfee, I was chief security architect for Network Associates, which is what we used to call the parent company in those days. Of course, they changed names many times over the years, but I was also the the, uh, the head of product for McAfee.com. And uh, that was um, technically the third most successful startup uh, in the dot-com era. Uh, we went from about 400K of web-based advertising revenue to 330 million a year in subscription revenue in three years. It was like, boom. In fact, we hit that level with uh, only slightly over 200 employees before being wrapped back into Network Associates. After that, I went to Computer Associates. Uh, too many associates in this industry. Yeah, and, and <laughs> it was popular then. Uh, <laughs> and we, I was part of a business unit called eTrust. So I went from the, the, the sort of full spectrum in terms of sizes of companies and consumer booming to going into the enterprise side. And uh, it was the security business unit, uh, which had three product lines threat identity and access management, and then one in emerging and security management. And I don't know, they had about $100 million in mainframe revenue, as well as some ancillary products. And I call it maybe $300 million a year when you throw in the channel business, which was primarily antivirus and things like that. And by the time I left, it was about $1.2 billion. So that was over five years. And then I went to RSA, which tripled in size. I joined right around the time of the EMC acquisition as head of product. And then I switched over to a chief technology officer function. And um, by the time, so I guess the, the revenue when I joined was around 350 million. When I left, it was over a billion. And then I, and then I went through a series of smaller companies. I was at MicroStrategy uh, for eight months. Um, Arbor Networks, which went from being owned by Danaher Corporation and sold along with five other business units in one day to NetScout. And then Cyber Reason. And when I joined Cyber Reason, um, we were around 15 million a year 
uh, or so, and we're over ten times that now, and that's and not even four years. So it's been fun. But I've also I also ran RSA Labs along the way and the National Security Institute. So I'm a four time CISO now, and it's been a blast. I think that's a lot longer than you bargained for when you asked me for a sentence. That's that's a, <laughs> that's a lot of differences. And um, what struck me about that list is that. Not only were there was just a lot I and mean, huge business shifts from zero to something that you said, and then um, through multiple acquisitions and learnings. Oh yeah, what was, crazy. Like, what was the hardest part about that? Or these in these different things, you like normally kind of identify things that are like, oh yeah, that's gonna that's gonna be a tough one. What's that was gonna, that gonna leave a mark. Um, So the <laughs> toughest things, um, <laughs> like I, I would say that. Uh, the world changed so much. Like, like the notion of an internet generation as opposed to a human generation is so short. So we just covered a span of 1995 to 2020. That's 25 years. And we were doing what we called ASP in those days, application service provider, with the McAfee days. Today, we'd call it SaaS. But along the way, the bad guys got tougher. Um, my, my biggest complaint about the security industry in general, because I love security, I love the people in it. But my biggest problem is that we've spent, just take the last decade, depending on whether you believe Gartner or IDC or Forrester Numbers or whatever, is a trillion dollars spent, excluding government spent, excluding. Yeah. And we still say there's those who've been hacked and those who don't know it. And that's infuriating. Like, how is that possible? So the, the toughest times for me were, you know, I've got a lot of failures in my career. There's some products I could share with you, and I'd be happy to, by the way, that were like, ugh, ill-conceived, poorly thought out, should have been features, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. The hardest things were the bad guys and and watching you know friends and in some cases family because by the way my dad and my brother are both security guys get hacked and when I was in the RSA breach painful um, nobody wants to go through that I've been in three major breach like incidents and each time you think it's the end of the world life does go on the, por- the important thing though is that that lessons observed become lessons learned that they change what you do just like in business right I, mean, I, I share with people my product failures as well. Because we shouldn't do them again, you know. And, and I don't want to be repeating the mistakes of the past. So the hardest thing has been the changing landscape, exterior, you know, and the technology landscape, and the, the adversary. They're just they're getting better faster than our industry is responding. Mm. Well, one of the things that drives me crazy about security is you can do ninety nine things right, but it's the hundredth. All you need is one. Yeah. One vulnerability, one angle. Um, yeah. And uh, it's infuriating when you're building software as fast as you can, which is which is often the the job requirement. So I'm curious. It's interesting too because you you switch from product roles, technology roles, and back again. Mm-hmm. Um, you have the architect title at various parts of your career. So you're you're definitely on the nerdier end, but with a product bent. How do you how do I you describe yourself as a professional? How do I what? How do I uh, what? How, how do, do I excuse that? In yeah, in that in that space, like how do you describe yourself? What's your what's your skill set? What's your bent? Well, so this is this is the problem, right? I mean, um, if you ask someone, how'd you get here? They usually do the, uh, they tell the perfect narrative. Well, I was so brilliant. I thought of doing this and then I did it. And then I thought of doing that and I did it. Like the Babe Ruth, I pointed at the stands of the ball right there. <laughs> and, and, but let's be clear. Most oh, of life is brownie in motion. And, <laughs> and humans, we tell narratives after. So I, I, I look for lessons. And this is one of the big reasons that a lot of executives who are transplanted fail because they sort of have their own mythology about themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and unfortunately, uh, like, you know, like a, like a checkoff play, there's no real like climax to the plot and there's no like, and then I learned this neat lesson. There are lessons. Um, but I'm not, I'm not arrogant enough to think that there was a master plan, but I, I, you know, I think if you go back, I, I've always loved tech. 
and its potential for what it can be for human existence and, and the human experience. And I have I had a very influential woman in my in my early career who had the desk next to me and she was very senior to me. And I her name was Janet and uh, Chandler. And I said, uh, how have you gotten here? Because she had taken 10 years off to raise children and come back to work. Um, and she was a deck in those days. Mm-hmm. And she said, uh, it's easy. You don't let anything go by your desk without trying, right? Without taking a piece of it. And to some extent, I, I, I try to avoid the no answer and do the maybe yes and or yes but at worst. Like, let me help you with that. And if it's not, if I'm not supposed to, then it will figure that out after. And just leaning in like that, um, I think has got to me to where I am. So like when I was at McAfee, I was chief security architect and on the R&D side and, and, and research. And two things happened. First of all, McAfee.com popped up and they said, we want you to run product. And I said, I have no idea how to do that. Like none. And uh, I'm reminded of a friend of mine, uh, Tom Corn, who's now at VMware slash uh, Carbon Black. He, he said, I'm very bad at time management. I'm like, you're one of the best I know at it. It's because he was conscientious about it, right? So in my case, I said, let's go figure out how to do the product management thing. And I got studious about it instead of just winging it. And lo and behold, it had an amazing effect. Same thing happened, by the way. Uh, the marketing team said, we'd like you to do a press interview. The, the CEO is not available, which it turned out was a complete lie. He was. Mm-hmm. They just had an intuition that I'd be decent at it. And as a result, mm-hmm. they wound up a spokesperson for all those companies, right? They're like, by the way, in your copious spare time, could you answer a few press questions? So it's, um, I think it's more of a... Some people at some point, yeah, I had a boss uh, uh, at RSA, one of my bosses, Art Cavillo was one, Tom Heiser was one. Tom said to me, he said, your left brain and right brain, Sam. And, um, and I, I guess at some point in our childhood, we have a, a great math teacher or a great English teacher, and we gravitate to one side or the other. I was lucky I had teachers who were great at both, and I never felt like there was this split in my life. So I could be technical and business. I could be art and science. And as a result, I genuinely believe anyone can do anything if they set their mind to it. Now, don't go and do brain surgery without the right training. Maybe a few other professions, like like maybe taxes. Uh, um, but um, I say maybe people do their own taxes. But but it's, uh, I've never said no to stuff, and I figure just tackle it. Now, maybe there's some Dunning-Kruger in there, but it's worth, as an attitude, tackling it. Hmm. Well, and given your profile, I imagine that uh, that uh, you're very strong at pattern recognition. So even as you describe a world that has changed at an accelerated rate, are there principles or or um, uh, guiding lessons that you um, use actively or advise others around you as they're you know we're all we're all trying to build something right and and it's the great yeah. unknown what's going to work what's going to stick what's going to resonate and, and so forth so i'm curious if you have some, some lessons that yeah when the, when the when the bell rings nice elevate in the pavlovian way right um uh, it's like thinking fast and slow or um or or blink right um Malcolm Gladwell and comment for that um that in in essence your subconscious is where most of your your over time experiences building these deep instincts and responses being as conscious of it as you can be is important because sometimes it's highly applicable and sometimes it's not and it can get you in danger um so i think a sense of humility is important to constantly have a mindset of of, of inquiry that you ask questions and you, you're a critical thinker and you're a skeptic right so uh it might help that i was born a canadian and and as a result we have a very egalitarian society um you know, everyone pretty much puts their pants on, on or, their, or their winter hat, their toque on the same way. Um, 
But I, uh, I just think humility is absolutely critical and an open mind. And um, you got to avoid, I mentioned Dunning-Kruger before, which, which has, uh, Dunning-Kruger effect has two, um, two interesting results. The first is that if you don't know much, you can have super high confidence when you start to do something. Right. Um, it's called Mount Stupid. If you graph confidence <laughs> over experience, you get this huge spike like, oh, how hard could this be? Right. Like, yeah, it's easy. I got it. I'm, I'm an expert. Um, and then it. you actually but then you plummet. Then you plummet into this trough of, oh, I have no confidence. I, I can't do this. It's too hard. And then real confidence is built up over a very long period of time. So you wind up with these executives first exposed to a subject or politicians who say, oh, how hard could it be? And then you get these experts who undervalue their own experience. And they go, yeah, you're right. It's not that hard. Because it's really hard to remember how hard it was to get here, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. So, so your question's a deep one, Scott, because um, mm-hmm. the, the, the challenge is to realize when you do have adjacent experience that applies. And then to examine this skeptical and an inquisitive way and say, well, how is my experience different? So, and who has closer experience and humbly go find that. Mm. Or then again, you can just bluster through it. I mean, Well, yeah, it's it's (laughs) similar to, it feels as if you're someone who's very aligned to the idea of the growth, Carol Dweckham, the the growth mindset, that you can always learn, that you can always adapt, that you can always apply. And if you come to it with a lot of humility, you can change things. I did want to mention that you give a shout out to a mom who stepped out of the workforce and came back. And I found that those are powerhouse people. Maybe that's because my mom was one. Yeah, and maybe the best hire I've ever made was one too. Um, even though that wasn't my journey as a working mom, I am I'm a huge fan of moms who come back in with a vengeance. I, I, I am such it. a believer in it, by the way, that um, I encourage the people who report to me to have a lot of personal development goals and to really focus on learning. But I myself am going back to college for another degree, so I'm approaching fifty here, and I'm like, you know what? There's more learning to be done, like a lot more. I mean, it's not just every day. It's, you know, go tackle a big body learning. And crazily, I did it during COVID. So, um, you know, got to do it. You're no, bored. No excuses for not starting. <laughs> no, I was not bored. And then my wife's like, I said, can I do this? She said, yeah. Because we're both the same way. It's like, if you want to do it, you just start. And then mm-hmm. you find ways to make it work. And, and that old adage, if you want something done, give it to a busy person. It's so true for my oh. wife. <laughs> oh, yeah, but not for you. No, no. What are you studying? Uh, I'm studying uh, counterterrorism at Nichols College. Oh, okay. Hmm. Yeah, at least it's not like a big meaty topic, right? <laughs> oh. How hard can it be? How hard can it be? <laughs> You'll find out later. Dunning Kruger callback right there. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, so, I, I often it? find that with product people, though, that a lot of people, you have to have all this expertise in the industry and like, no. <laughs> well, you know what? Uh, it helps a lot. And especially in something like security, like, you know how things tend to, they tend to sweets over time, like ERP did, right? Mm-hmm. When something is a commodity and you, it's a, and it's available everywhere and the quality is the same everywhere and it's only differentiated on price, at that point, what does subject matter expertise help with? But one of the reasons why security, you see so many acquisitions of mid-sized companies and then thousands of startups is we haven't beaten the bad guys, what Scott said earlier. Mm-hmm. They just have to get it right once. We have to get it right all the time. And they're innovating at a faster rate in general than the industry is. And I don't just mean vendors. Mm-hmm. I mean processes and frameworks. Like, And by the way, we're spending our time on a lot of things like putting check boxes in compliance reports or running reports for another part of the business or 
yeah. or, or you know, projects to set up infrastructure, which is not the same as fighting the adversary 100% of our time. That's what the attackers do, right? So it's, um, yeah, in that world, there is um, subject matter expertise does matter. So I don't want to say it doesn't, but really important, I took a fascinating personality. I mean, I've done Myers-Briggs and DISC and all that stuff, right? And, mm-hmm. But a fascinating one was called PCM. And if, you, if people look it up, uh, they'll find it online, which talks about what the inner struggle people have is. And so it, it goes just a little beyond the behavioral psychology, just a little bit into motivation, which, which is dangerous area for those who study psychology. But it said that there's one personality type, and I find insecurity, this is a very common one. It is the one for whom the inner need is to demonstrate competence. Mm. And you'll spot this in product types and you'll spot it in security types. It's the person who needs to prove that the smartest in the room needs to prove, even though everybody knows it. Yeah. And they cannot admit that they don't know something. It's when, or that, or that they didn't possibly think about something. And I will say that that's one of the most unhealthy attitudes. I've been guilty of it too. Mm-hmm. Uh, so no, no hiding behind me. Look at me. I'm awesome. Um, it does. And it's, it's one of my demons, right? But it's one of those things that you have to say, you know what? Shut up and listen. And really get aggressive at finding the flaws, examining them in a joyful way so you can make them better. And I think that there's not enough of that in in security. The truly brilliant ones are the ones that they go looking for where they got it wrong, right? The ones that everybody seems to pay a lot of attention to, same thing in product Mm -hmm. for any industry, is the ones that look like they always get it right. But that's that's just, you know, alpha behavior, it's 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 following the leader with the with the hands on the hips, the Wonder Woman or Superman pose. Mm-hmm. Well, I see that. It, it, go ahead, Scott. Well, I was just going to say it's interesting because yeah, I mean, isn't isn't just the shape of security as a as a industry, not to mention how it how it represents in com- product companies that we work with and that I've worked for in the past, is evidence that we have not figured out security as an industry. We have not oh, figured yeah. this out. Um, but it's sort of like saying, you know, we've not we've not figured out the human condition, uh, which which I mentioned earlier, or we've not figured out world hunger or biology. It's like these these are these are things that it's it's part of life that you don't actually come to a solution. I had someone ask me a CISO once asked or CIO because CISOs would usually do this. The CIO said, um, "When can I just get a one U rack mountable security solution? Like, what do I have to pay to get that?" And I said, well, what do you do? When can I get a one-year rack mentable solution for world hunger? Right? When, when can I get that for fighting diseases or for violence? And the answer is you can't. It's a constant race. There are some things like, like being fit. Hey, when can I get a pill to be thin and healthy? I'd love that, right? No, but the I'm answer sure. is I have, to, <laughs> I have to invest in getting better at eating, especially as I age and at exercising. And, and being able to exercise, that, that, that almost health is not measured on a scale, although that helps. Uh, it's measured in, in how well you heal and how, how much energy you have. And, and it's the same thing in security. So I've been advising people, don't tell people, just do these three things and we're safe to work from home during COVID. And say, instead say, here's my risk registry. Here's the top three things we have to burn down. And I want to check back with you every month on what's rising or falling, kind of like a stock market. Because we have an adaptive opponent here. And anytime that's true, anything you do has a shelf life for a bunch of reasons we could go into. But um, you, you need to be thinking about it like, like legal conflict or like sales, where you have 
it's human beings that are also trying to get the same accounts as you. Or we have lawyers that are intelligent human beings trying to beat you in a court with many, many factors. It's the same kind of conflict. You would never say to your legal counsel, hey, what is my one U rack mountable solution so I never get sued? Here's my <laughs> one U rack mountable solution so I always win deals. No, 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 no. You don't get that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'll get off my soapbox. Now, but. That's a useful metaphor. Yeah. So, you know, given that you've been in so many different organizations, I imagine you'll have a, a, a nuanced answer to this question, but like, how do you know the changes that you're trying to enact are working or not? What do you look for? Uh, that's tough. The action, you know, you know, cause and effect um, type of type. Like, how, how do you look for evidence? Um, the, the, it's, it's, it's a trite answer, but metrics are important. Um, and tracking over time always, like, I think just the art of metrics is, is not trivial. Um, so the answer is the result. But the, the, the trick there is that you never know what would have happened on the other path. So we had two choices, do A or do B. After the fact, how do you know if A or B was right? Well, you don't. You only know the result of the path you took, right? Mm-hmm. Um, this was my problem with back in I took ethics years ago. I studied it. Utilitarianism, right? The, that the the choice that is better according to utilitarian ethos is that which leads to the most happiness for the most people, right? Or negative consequentialism, that which leads to the least unhappiness, right? But the thing is, you never know the outcome of another path or another choice. So what you have to do is break it down and you have to find times when you can compare outcomes and you have to find leading indicators and trailing indicators and they have to have some longevity and the choice of metrics and then the derived KPIs is really important. That's the way you know, but in the end, we usually have very bad behaviors. We usually say, hey, I have a plan, here it is, and then success or failure we assume is indication of whether the plan was a good one or not. And it's not necessarily. And this is also in the survivor bias, right? If you, if you ask 10,000 entrepreneurs the day they found their company, why are you special? They say, because I believe in myself and I work hard and I have this amazing technology and great partners. And in the first year, 9,000 fail. The next year, 900 fail. And then 90 fail. And then nine. And you ask the last one, why did you succeed? And the answer is the exact same as the 10,000 gave to begin with. But people listening now have a hero sort of, Hey, look at this person who succeeded. They go, I should do that. Well, no. The 9,999 who failed felt the same way. Go deeper. So I think it demands a lot more, let's say, postmortem or perhaps postpartum analysis. But you never, you never get to a place you say, aha, I 100% know what caused it. it, it mm-hmm. It's much more complex than that. I think that's Unless a narrative. It's very small. That narrative you talked about, that story that we kind of tell ourselves about our careers, or the story we kind of tell ourselves about a successful product, and it's almost kind of like poker, where you can you can play a hand really well and lose, or you can play a hand really poorly and win. And there's some things you can do to maybe increase your chances with the cards you have in your deck, but there's still a lot that you can't control. This is but why that doesn't make sense. such a complicated. Right. It doesn't. It's not a great story. No, it's a. It's not. But there, it, there is hope in this, which is you should care about how the player plays the game, not just the scores they got. And I know I don't want to sound like it's like you're telling a, a five-year-old soccer team it doesn't matter if they win. You know it does, right? But 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 what you want to do is you want to choose a team of, uh, uh, of players who who play and learn and adapt well. 
because they're the better long-term bet. Um, yeah, this reminds me of Moneyball by Michael Lewis, right? There was a movie with Brad Pitt. And mm-hmm. here was a team that had the second lowest payroll in baseball and went to the World Series three times, right? And the question was how? And it was because they thought, the manager for the team thought of baseball, according to Michael Lewis, as a machine that generates runs. And there's a correlation between the number of runs, high correlation, whether you go to the World Series or not. And sure enough, he produced, now, you know what? He said, uh, defense is important, stopping the team from from scoring runs, but it's not the primary mission. This machine, this baseball team has a job. Let's do that and do it better. And then, of course, there's a big data story behind it, and people have done the case study in business school and stuff. But like this book was really specific. It said, now let's go find the things you do on a field and their ability to contribute to runs and go hire the people for that who are undervalued in the market. And that's what they did. Everyone else was looking at, you know, based on ancient, you know, instinct and personal experience, who's got potential? No, he said high school and college performance is data. And it's a good predictor of future performance. And so you wound up with an Oakland A's team that looked a little strange because they, they didn't, the, the scouts weren't refining for the thoroughbreds, but it cost very little and it did very well. Now that bring that to security. In the world of cyber, we have a job, right? We have a lot of things like defense, like compliance and reporting and setting up the perfect, perfect reference architecture. That's all important vulnerabilities. And yeah, absolutely. You have to do your framework and it takes up a lot of your time. But that's just like you have to stop the other team. You have to be able to field an outfield and stop the other team from scoring runs. It's not the main job. The main job is stopping bad guys sooner and more completely. Stopping it. It's not detecting them. It's not having the best special snowflake screen that makes people feel good or reports or intel feeds. It's the result. And and that is something that I think if we focus on that machine has a purpose for the business, I think there's a great opportunity to uh, improve in efficiency and 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 frankly to be much more pragmatic about choices we make and and talking to the business because the biggest bit problem in security today is the lack of alignment between the business and the security it's not anything yeah. else that you hear from vendors well and, and i often tell that. folks one of one of the one of my biggest challenges in in justifying spend on security has been you, you know until you're you're attacked until you have a proven attack successful or unsuccessful you are spending too much after an attack, especially a successful, how could you, you not have spent more? <laughs> yeah, like why didn't you? Why didn't you ask me for more? And it's like, well, <laughs> right. So it, it, it's this, it, as a product and technology leader, it's always felt really difficult to stand in front of my CEO and say, "This is what my budget should look like on this aspect of what we're trying to do." And by the way, I have a you know a DevOps model, so I need to make sure that all of my practitioners who touch my product have this mindset um, and awareness and and techniques, and we agree to these things and, and so forth. So, so that that always struck me as a, as a really difficult challenge that we haven't figured out how to how that that relationship with the business. So, how do I'm curious? Like, what what are some insights you have from? I'm sure you've had that conversation a lot, trying to win alignment business and the, and the security professionals. Yeah. So, so the, my my Moneyball uh, analogy came because I used it when the movie was popular. I used it with my CEO then to say I have a job. The CFO is like, sales. Your job is to bring money. Check. You know, like engineering, your job is to make the things that sales uses to bring money. Check. Marketing, you're going to go off and give us a tailwind from the reputation so we're not embarrassed and go generate leads for sales to bring in money. Security, you're buying toys? What are you, what are you doing? Why would I give you more money? Um, that, that, so, you know, I think the way to bridge it is um, 
you have to be present and talking about the business. One of the biggest mistakes I made was the second time I was a CISO, I turned up uh, at the C-level and I was like the competence bias that I had, right? Or the competence, it's not actually a bias, the competence need. Um, I leapt on, you know, like, like a starving man on a piece of pizza. I leapt, every time the word security popped up, I was on it. I was the smartest guy in the room, but they all knew that. I mean, one yeah. thing, tell me one thing about Sam. Oh, he's the security guy who just arrived. Okay. But what they didn't, every time I did that, they didn't, they thought of me as less of a business person. Mm-hmm. And this, this is the great, this is the great tragedy that what I should have been doing was jumping on everything that had like, oh, we're opening an office in Egypt. Tell me more. Right. Or, oh, we have a, we have a, a, a problem with one of our channel partners in the mid market. Tell me more. Like, instead I was going, to sleep on that subject, on those subjects. And I'm like, wait, there's a firewall issue? Like that, that was that was the miss. I needed to get more uh, call it bona fides as a business person at the table. It helps now, by the way, because I have I have the the instinct, but it helps now that I'm actually at a security company, so that doesn't really stand out that much. But um, you know, I won't be just at security companies for my career and I won't just be a CISO. I have I want to do bigger and cooler things. It's funny that you mentioned that I have a good friend who's in talent and every second, every time the conversation swung to talent, she was there, but she never got, she didn't really get to that level in her career that she wanted to until she engaged in a lot more topics that weren't just talent. And I, it's funny that as I've, I've worked with a lot of security clients, I'm working with one right now. And I find that they get really in in much the same way that you were the security guy. They are the security vendor. They're not an enabler connected to the rest of the business. So it's always just a line item that's over here in the security bucket that I don't understand. And that's not something that's providing value to the rest of the business. We're actually, you know, how you manage security if you're if in certain um, industries. It's, it's actually, it's a constant balancing act between how do I decide what revenue to take in and what risk to take? And if you have a partner at the table who can't just tell you yes, no, but it, that's a business partner in the same way that a talent person will say like, well, I'm just not, I can't, I'm not going to tell you what's legal or not, but I'm going to help you think through these things. And so I see a lot of security companies and security people get stuck over here where the conversation they actually need to uh, participate in and the way they need to participate in the business which makes them a much more valuable partner. Um, so they're less likely to get the strike when something in like COVID happens. A lot of people were like, they went through line by line in their budget and they're like, yeah, you know what? But it's like, no, I can't. I, this is how I balance my risk and reward. This is how I, I manage my inbound revenue. If, if I know that, I stay on that list. I'm, I'm not even a consideration for being... Yeah, you, you're, you're spot on. I have a, a friend who was in HR and every time... She was a senior manager for the company. And every time there was an HR subject, she'd be at the meeting. And when there wasn't one on the agenda, she would deprioritize the meeting. No. Like, what are you doing? Because now we don't think you're, you care about the rest. Uh, but inside mm-hmm. the security department, I sometimes I'll go up to a whiteboard with a fellow CISO and I'll say, here's a pyramid. Now tell me what you're spending. Like at the bottom of this, put the big spends and at the top, put the little spends. And usually what happens is down at the bottom, you get all the commodity stuff. That's like, you know, it's like your, it's like your firewall. It's like your malware stuff. It's your authentication stuff. And I'm like, how long you had this stuff? And if they've been around that long, they're like 15 years. Right. And then as you move up, you get more cyber value and less money. And I said, this is a symptom of you not being aligned with the CFO. 
I said, because when, when they go through a COVID-like experience, like you're saying, Jazz, they're going to say, let's just start striking things. And you know what sticks around? The stuff at the bottom of your pyramid, because nobody gets fired for having had that stuff. And it's known what get, you lose is the stuff at the top of the pyramid that you most need. But if you instead turned up more, they would trust you. And in fact, you should say to them, because what happens in budget time, right? Somebody from the CFO's office comes by and says, oh, we're doing our budget. And you go, ugh. And you, and you say, okay, I know this is important. It's critical to my, my influence, everything, and what I can do. So you, and the, the, you're about to get engaged, and the, the CFO's um, assistant says, oh, don't worry about it. I took your budget last year. I moved it forward, and we just got to take 10% out. And now, if instead you, you, you'd say, but, yeah, but I need 15% more, and then the fight starts. If instead you'd started, say, six months earlier, and you'd gone and said, you see this stuff at the bottom? This is kind of this is kind of commodity. It should depreciate year over year, and it hasn't been. Could you assign someone to help me negotiate at, at renewal for these, so that I get ten to thirty percent back, and I'll split mm-hmm. the difference with you? What I need you to do is help me move some up, so I can get things that help me stop the more advanced attacks. Think of that conversation. Mm-hmm. When the budget comes, it becomes natural. It's like, hey, you 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 have the pyramid on your whiteboard. The 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 CFO or their assistant, maybe the CFO comes because they like talking to you now. And they come in and they go, okay, we're going to chop 20% off down here. We're going to move 10% up. I'll take 10% back. Thank you. And now you go away and you restructure. Why? Because you want your people on the things that matter, not managing the firewalls and the antivirus and the authentication. That stuff should be, move it to IT, by the way. If it's mm-hmm. just ops, if it's not requiring special knowledge, get it out of your department. Mm-hmm. Now that's a much more mature discussion to have with the business. Well, and when you come back and you say, Hey, you know what? We didn't plan this spend. We haven't talked about it, but we need it. There's this new thing. There's this sure. investment that we need to make. Um, they listen. They trust they're going to listen. Yeah, it's a whole. It's going to be a totally different conversation. And, and I would even say security companies need to start adopting the same kind of mindset because they only. So many of them get to your point. They they start up and then they get acquired by some. They get stuck in the CISO's office. They can never. Right. They can never um, penetrate beyond a item in that budget tucked in, never being seen, never being understood by the broader organization. And because they're so, you can't, they can't show the ROI, you can't demonstrate value, you can't see insights like you, um, you know, it's just the table. And it's, well, the other thing is, if you, if, you turn up, if you turn up and see the CFO and you say one of two things, you're going to lose credibility. If you say, hey, I'm the CISO for the organization and I deal with risk. You're going to lose credibility because they're going to say, oh, really? You know, I deal with risk in a lot of parts, like legal risk, financial risk, operational risk. Show me the numbers. And you're like, I don't have numbers because it's obvious I stop bad things from happening. Credibility lost. The other one is if you turn up and say, I want to prove the ROI of my stuff. Why? Because you've heard some salespeople use it, Um, right? Or the marketing people have been trying to show ROI to their customers. It's not transferable to a CISO. Um, because we are a cost center. Like, mm-hmm. Unless you are a vendor of security who's showcasing the spend to sell more, maybe a reseller of some sort, then it isn't about a return on investment. No money's coming in for what you do. It's about a sound investment. It's about efficiency. It's about maybe minimizing costs for a result, but, but let's not kid ourselves. It's not about, hey, if you buy this firewall and deploy it, I'll bring in $2 million more. There's no return. Well, what you're what you're speaking to is the importance of credibility, and you have to establish that credibility 
before the convert the hard conversation, right? That that again, your your role as as partner. And what's what's cool about this lesson is I think it applies to any middle management role. The importance of being an integrated partner to caring about the others, because the fact is, is like like as a product leader, my product can't be successful if the head of sales isn't successful, right? Like I need them to be good at what they do. I'm I need to support their success. I need client success to be really good at what they do. Um, the better they are at what they do, they take a burden off my roadmap. So it, it's huge for me. Um, you know, I, I need those partnerships, and and I find that there's a lot of leaders, and it, and it strikes me because I think I think security suffers from this more for the reasons that you talked about. Is that 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 lack of partnership is the challenge? It's like, wait, do you want me to succeed or do you want us to be secure? Because I kind of need both. <laughs> like, so which you know. But what you're talking about is really important. It, it, it is about actually trust. And trust is not just reliability and credibility. It's also that you know each other and that you and you hit on it. It's that you align on common goals. Mm-hmm. Like no, you, it's really hard to trust someone if you're like, is the person on the side of the table trying to get the same thing as me? Yeah. And so I, I you know, earlier I said the biggest problem in security is a lack of alignment between security and the business. That's usually because the business thinks I'm trying to keep the EPS up, or I'm trying to hit a, a goals so we can IPO, or I'm you know trying to prove to the street that we are. Of, you know, deserving of a high multiple as a SaaS or something like that. Meanwhile, what's the security person trying to do? Well, I'm, I'm trying to increase the number of viruses I caught this month. So, <laughs> and then literally the CFO will say, so, and you'll say, well, because it would be bad if we got a virus. Yes, it would. How bad? Uh, well, very bad. That's, <laughs> weird. I, that's not a trust conversation. Is it, this is the sign of a conversation not going well, I take it. <laughs> it's not gonna, well, and it just, it just went, it's kind of like, okay. The, as opposed to saying, well, the reputational risk, if you want that multiple, we can't have a breach. That's right. That's, that's a, that's, you know, that is a, a good reflex right there, right? You're like, you're bringing it into alignment with what, what they're after. And, and I know the, a big part of this is innovation. Innovation is found when you can invest and move resources and you can focus on efficiency uh, in the areas where you have problems. Right, it's not found in sitting managing a large budget over a statutory spend. It's your discretionary spend that you need, and then you can start to do portfolio management on it. Whether you're a product person or a security person or a marketing person or an engineering person, it doesn't matter. It is getting things to the top of whatever that pyramid is for your domain, and saying now I want to manage a portfolio. I want to burn down all kinds of different risks. But yeah, your reputational risk point is spot on. It's how you start to align and get control over your budget. Would you rather have 10% of your budget on as discretionary going on things that are problematic or 90? That would be the inverted pyramid. Hmm. I I so want to continue, but I know you have a hard stop <laughs> and I know it's an important one. So we're yeah. not going to, we're going to make sure we bring you in on time here. Um, so we do have just two kind of fun questions we like to ask hmm. people. So what's the thing that you look for to tell you that a team is healthy or having trouble? So it's funny, you know, when it, when a team is clicking right, everything seems to be going well. And when it's not, everything seems to be going poorly. And, and I actually believe that things like attrition are trailing indicators, right? Um, and even when you do like employee satisfaction surveys, the only way you know it is when you roll up your sleeves and, and, and you actually do the hard work of caring and meeting regularly skip levels 
and getting a sense and listening a whole heck of a lot. It's not about you having the podium about your values. It, it's in fact about meeting folks. So every one of my direct reports, uh, we have three kinds of meetings. We have subject matter meetings, which we could be teaching each other. We have the, what are you doing? How's it going? What do you need meetings? And then we have the, is your career going the right way? And those are closed door. It's like, are you learning the right things? Uh, if you weren't here, what would you be doing? Is this still the best place for you? Rather than like to hide it from me, I always tell my people, if you're doing well, you have a standing reference and you will have no limitation on options. And like, in other words, I'm not going to not continue for a promotion because you're looking somewhere else. I want them to be choosing where they work with me because it's the best place to be. And I'm giving them the kind of environment they're growing in. And the most important thing is I'm listening in all of those, right? Um, but it, it, you, know, you know when it's going poorly, you know it's going well. What you want to do is get ahead of it. And, and most metrics around this are not good enough. So I, I generally look for, are people leaning in and doing more? But that could be an indication of during COVID, they don't want to lose their job or they really need the money or they're motivated to make more. That doesn't mean necessarily the team is working. And what piece of technology, analog, software, hardware, that is not your phone, can you not live without? So uh, what piece of technology of any kind? Because I always have, pen and paper around me, which is horrible. Like, it's so bad. It's like... You are not the... Well, it's funny because we both yeah, have pen yeah. and paper. And you're also not the first... You're not the first person to, to mention that. We get um, some interesting answers. Once we said you're not allowed to say your fault. But so, but it, so hang on a second. Technology, technology, technology. Maybe air conditioning. Oh, that's a good one. <laughs> Given that we're all here in Virginia where it's really hot. Climate control. Yeah. Some sort, which is which is very ungreen, so definitely won't say that. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, for me, it's not about tech. It is. Uh, yeah, I think it's. I think it's the ability to take notes. And I'm. I'm a checkbox person. I guess I like the dopamine hit. Right. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I'll do something and be like, I'm just going to put a box and check it right away. But uh, yeah, um, pen and paper okay. is for me. Well, thank you so much. Enlightening conversation. Thank you. Um, on thinking and security and career development and and definitely one I would share with all the CISOs that I know, which is not a small number. <laughs> so thank you so much. Well, I hope people get something out of it. Guys, thanks for having me. This has been fun and uh, happy to do it again sometime if, uh, if it's a subject to, I can weigh in on. Fantastic. Yeah, well, we're always looking for, for, uh, for great advice uh, in this space. Um, but, uh, but you shared some really great insights for that I think is applicable for any, any middle tier leader. Uh, that's, uh, that's, that's trying to figure out how to, how to have a bigger impact. So thank you. This has been an episode of the Innovation Engine, a podcast from Three Pillar Global. If you have questions, comments, or guest suggestions, email us at info at threepillarglobal.com or visit threepillarglobal.com.